Well, good morning, everybody. Glad that you're here with us. Um, the few of you who are in the room, thanks for serving. Those of you who are at home, thanks for tuning in. And um, we are at Redemption Church. Part of how we practice our faith as Christians is we follow the church calendar. And it is the season right now of epiphany, which is this word that means um, to discover, to something shows up and changes the situation for you. It re something's revealed. And we tell these stories about Jesus where something about who he is is revealed. And then we ask ourselves, how should we respond? And so that's really epiphany. It's a season of revelation and response. How, what's being shown about God and us? And then how should we make changes in our lives in obedience to this? And um, this is just part of how we observe the church calendar. Now, we're not the only ones who have a church calendar. When God gave Israel the Torah, the law, um, God gave them also a church calendar. Now, when we say law, we don't mean like just like rules and regulations. It's um, basic instructions on how to be the people of God. So it concerned all of life. And um, because it's, they, they call it law because it's how you organize, how you make systems and stuff. And, and, and this was embedded in a calendar of like festivals and seasons and holy days that was going to shape them into this peculiar people that had a different way of being from the rest of the world. And part of their calendar was every seven days there was to be a Sabbath day where you didn't work, you just delight in the joy of being a human being. And, and just learn what it means to, to be human. Then every seven years, they had a sabbatical year where they would not plant in their fields and where they would forgive debts. And this was kind of similar to Sabbath. It was for the restoration of the land and to restore those who had fallen on hard times financially. And then every, set, every seven sets of seven years, there was the year of Jubilee in that 50th year. And so once kind of every lifetime, on the Day of Atonement, the silver trumpet would sound in Jerusalem, and at that very moment, all debts were canceled in Israel. Um, all slaves were set free, and property was restored. If you had lost it, it went back to the ancestral family that owned it in the first place. This is Jubilee, the year of Jubilee, or the year of the Lord's favor, and it's basically this way of just hitting reset on the whole economy. Now, this would, of course, make them a peculiar people, no, no doubt. This is a, a peculiar economic practice. But it wasn't just about the economics. That's really not even the reason. It, the reason they did this is because they, they needed to restore right relationships with other human beings. Every seven years, they needed to just hit the brakes on, on all the debt and just forgive and try to relate without that in between them anymore. Every 50 years, they hit the brakes on the debt and the slavery and the land amassing in the hands of just a few people. So, so that everyone would be restored to um, a place of viability and a place of full participation in the life of, of Israel so that they could all flourish and become human as human was intended to be. So God gives them this calendar and especially this jubilee practice, or sometimes they called it the year of the Lord's favor. They did this um, to form them, and Sabbath, all of it, to form them as a peculiar people who never left anyone behind. That, that was the idea. You see, God wanted their common life, all of it, to... Um, 
be organized in such a way that there wasn't like a permanent elite or aristocracy, and then a permanent underclass or peasantry. Um, it's, it, it always reminds me of the game of Monopoly. Like you probably played, everybody played Monopoly here at least once or twice in your life, which for me is probably enough. Like I'm, I'm the guy who's, if your kids ask you to play Monopoly, I'm like, can't I just give you $20 instead? <laughs> like let's just do that. I, I learned, I did not know this until this year, um, that um, Monopoly was invented by a religious person, a Quaker named Lizzie McGee. She originally called it the landlord's game. And, and this was 1904, this is in the age of the robber barons. She invented the game as a learning exercise to show people how frustrating predatory capitalism was. She, she wanted people to know what it was like, what it felt like to be poor and to have this money-grubbing landlord who's always hitting you up for money, right? And it, and it actually worked, it, it did this. Um, and she, she was trying to get them to see the way that that economic relationship functions is it, it not only ruins fair commerce, it, it ruins friendships and any sense of goodwill. And if you've played Monopoly, you know exactly what I mean. Like my grandma turned into a tyrant when we played Monopoly. She was scary. Um, and also good, she always won. I think she maybe stole from the bank or something. I don't know how she did it. But okay, so get this. Now the t story takes a turn. There's this guy named Charles Darrow who a couple decades later basically plagiarizes this game from Lizzie McGee, changed the rules so that if you actually get a monopoly, this is a good thing, and, and you want a monopoly in that time, sells the game to Parker Brothers and makes millions of dollars off of Lizzie McGee's invention, which totally seems fitting, does it not? That this game that is so cutthroat would make Charles Darrow rich and Lizzie McGee exactly nothing, right? And that's the whole point of the game, to gain such an advantage you can drive everyone else into desperate poverty so they can't pay their bills, and when you do that, you win, right? And the game's over. Um, and that's five hours of your life that you can never have back also, by the way. Um, so imagine you're in for this, you'll play this game, and you actually win. And then imagine that a couple weeks later, you decide to play again. For me, I think it's an every five or six year kind of a deal, but maybe you like this, and so a couple weeks later you play. But only this time, you decide, we're just gonna bypass the part where you buy new properties. Everybody just take the properties you had at the end of the game last, last time, and then we'll start from there. What will happen? The, that the robber baron, the monopolist, will, is that a word, monopolist, whatever, the, whoever had the best properties will win the game every time. And what, what God had done in their calendar and in their sevens, days, years, and seven sets of seven, he said, I don't want that kind of monopoly ever to organize among my people. I want you to love God and love people relate rightly to God, self, other, and, and world, and I don't want you monopolizing land or resources or money. That's not loving your neighbor, right? And so every 50 years, they would kind of reset the game and reallocate the resources into a more loving situation where everybody could relate more rightly. Now, we don't know how many times they did it as Israel. I'm convinced that at least one time but at some point, they, they stopped practicing Jubilee. And their punishment was, um, according to the prophets, exile. 
The rich got a monopoly on the economy, the courts, the land, the, the temple. They drove everyone else into desperate poverty. And the richer the aristocracy became, the worse and worse they treated everyone at the bottom. And eventually it all came crashing down. That's exile. That's what the prophets say. Israel was destroyed as a nation and carried off, either killed or carried off in, into exile. But in exile, they had to figure out a new way to organize, a new way to be faithful. And they began to dream about this anointed one, Messiah. And part of what Messiah would do is to come back and actually restore Jubilee. Start doing that again so that everybody can flourish, right? And everybody can have full participation in, in life and they can be delighting in being human again. And so in, in, during exile, they just longed and prayed and waited for the anointed one to come. Isaiah actually wrote about what it would be like. He said, this is how you know it'll happen. This is from Isaiah 61 that this anointed one will come and say, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. And so 700 years, they waited. And then Jesus was born and his family had run off to Egypt. They came back, couldn't stay at home, had to go up to Galilee. He comes down to the Jordan. He's baptized by John. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. And then we're told in Luke chapter 4, what we read earlier, part of it, Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee and reported, uh, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. So Isaiah has just said, the way you'll know it's about to happen, anointed one, Messiah is going to come, is that the spirit of the Lord will be upon him. And then we're told Jesus shows up in his hometown, filled with the power of the spirit. And everyone's talking about him. They're praising his teaching. And he's traveling around Galilee, speaking and, and building this big following. Then he goes home to his hometown, a synagogue in Nazareth, to teach there. And the synagogue is an interesting thing. Um, it was actually a way of worshiping they developed during exile. Synagogue service didn't exist until they were in Babylon. They're like, what are we going to do? We don't have no temple. And so they started this synagogue service. Um, about 13 years ago, on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee, um, at the foot of Mount Arabel, this is Mount Arabel, you're looking down on the Sea of Galilee there, this old Catholic priest had, had this dream of starting a retreat center on the Sea of Galilee, so he raised a bunch of money and bought land, and in Israel, if you buy land, if you want to develop it, you have to do an archaeological study, so they did this, and they found the remains of this ancient village in that place called Migdal Nunia, or in, in Aramaic, it was called Magdala. This is the village where Mary Magdalene was from. And in, in the remains of this Jewish synagogue, they found, or in the, of this ancient Jewish city, they found this synagogue, a Jewish synagogue. And um, it's one of the oldest excavated um, synagogues in the world. And, and as they're taking it apart and putting it back together, they, um, they found buried inside a couple of coins that were minted in Tiberias, just a city down, down the beach from them, um, that were minted in 29 AD. 
That means this place was active when Jesus was teaching. Same exact time. We have a coin that, that proves it. And we just, um, we just read that he was um, teaching all around the Galilee, of which this city was a part, um, in all the different synagogues. And so it's very likely that you're looking at a synagogue, the ruins of one, that Jesus would have taught in, probably more than once. Um, the one in Nazareth, similar-sized town, would have been very similar as well. And it would have been a, a beautiful place, a source of real pride for the village. Um, here you can see the floor that survived in one place. Those are little, you know, those little kind of one-inch tiles or a little smaller than an inch. It's just this intricate mosaic work. It's beautiful. I mean, it's weird to think Jesus, that's the door in. Jesus likely walked on those tiles. It's kind of weird to think about. Its walls were um, painted with colorful frescoes. This is just a fragment of one um, that was left um, standing. And um, this is pr the whole thing was probably covered in these, these frescoes. I mean, these are, these are peasants, right? These are not rich people. This is probably the finest thing in their town. The main hall would have been lined with these benches on all four sides, stone benches. 50, 60 people could kind of sit together shoulder to shoulder facing each other. And so this whole thing was set up for discussion about the Torah, about the writings, about the Jewish law, their practices, how they should organize their common life together, the meaning of things, the calendar that they followed, about what it meant to be the people of God. This never-ending kind of conversation slash, ar slash argument about the meaning of their lives in light of who God is. And in every synagogue, they had this thing called the Seat of Moses. Um, this is a picture of one from a different village up in um, Chorazin, which is um, part of that little triangle at the top of the Sea of Galilee that um, Capernaum and Bethsaida are part of. Like, these are where the disciples, a lot of them are from. And this is the, the special chair that would sit at the head of the congregation, and it had the symbol of authority. It's um, the Catholic Church, sometimes the Pope set, sits ex cathedra. Cathedra is the, is the word, they, the Greek word they use in Matthew for this chair, the seat of Moses. So whoever sits in the seat of Moses, they have the last word in the argument. And, and Jesus shows up in his hometown, you know, favorite son, they put him in the synagogue in the seat of Moses here. Um, a few years back, I, I went to Israel with some friends, and a rabbi actually explained to me that in, in the synagogue service, it was customary to sit in the seat of Moses as you read and taught. And if you stood, that indicated you were kind of going off script. Um, you were saying something sort of un unconventional or maybe new or even critical of the people who usually sat there. So it, you stood when you're doing something that wasn't the normal stuff they were used to hearing from those sitting in the, in the seat. But you didn't, like, shoot from the hip when you're seated in the seat of Moses. You, you stood up to do that so people would know, know the difference. You sit back down, you're back on script. And so every synagogue had a seat of Moses. And there was also a, a scroll stand. This is back to the, the um, synagogue in Magdala. The seat of Moses isn't there, but this is the scroll stand. Um, and you can kind of see, I don't know if you can see, if you go to the next picture, you can see how it's kind of bowed there to keep the scrolls in the middle, right? So they'd be turning and it would kind of keep them on the little deal. This thing's really short. This is part of why 
scholars think he was sitting when he read, um, or would have been sitting if, when he read if he was doing things normally. You sit at this short scroll stand. Um, but we're told here very explicitly this detail. He stood up to read. And the rabbi was like, this is weird. This is telling you more. If you're not Jewish, you don't know. But this, this is odd that he stood up to read. He should have been sitting. But this guy, this rabbi said, he believes as Jesus stood, it was a sign he was going off script in his reading. He's going to critique those who usually sit in the seat of Moses. And he was critical. We, we know this. Matthew 23 says, um, Jesus it tells a bunch of people, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. He's talking about this, this seat. And he says, be careful to do all they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. The seat of Moses is powerful. It's where the powerful sit to defend the status quo. And most of them were in on the racket, on the monopoly. And, and so Jesus doesn't sit in that seat when he reads the text, as was the normal thing. It says he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place it was written. And then Luke tells us what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's that old text. Because he had anointed me, he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. To proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and release to those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He stood up to read this famous text from Isaiah about what Messiah will do, proclaim good news to those who can't catch a break. By the way, the author here is Luke, who our tradition says was a physician by trade, which means he spent his life with the poor and the blind, and, and the captives, and the oppressed. He knew how difficult their lives were. His job was to sit with parents of dying children when there was nothing he could do. He was used to sitting with people in excruciating pain with no medicine to give them to make it, you know, feel better. People who lived on the ragged edge of poverty, or they needed Dr. Luke sometimes, often, and this text is kind of promising medicine, gospel medicine for these same people, not like a pill or a shot, although it could be that, but an, an anointed one who would change their situation for all the ones that Luke couldn't help as a physician. It's a very holistic picture of redemption that Isaiah talks about and he quotes here, reads here, that ends with this promise, the year of the Lord's favor, which is the jubilee year. It's another way of saying that. And so he's promising this massive reset button on their economy. Debts forgiven, slaves set free, land returned to its original owner, not just to, you know, replicate some idealist economic system, but so they could relate rightly to one another, not as masters and slaves, but as brothers and sisters. And it's an interesting bunch who's on this list, um, who will receive good news or some kind of aid. He starts with the poor, those in poverty. They'll have good news. And that word, good news, we're used to it. Gospel is the other rendering of it. The Greek word is euangelion. Sometimes, uh, most of the time, tra translated as gospel. But here's the thing. Euangelion, back then, was not a religious word. 
It was, and it was a particular thing. Euangelion was what happened when um, a king, a ruler, or a general, somebody got a good report from the front lines of a war. That's euangelion. And it's a proclamation, like a runner would come and tell him, hey, we won the battle, carrying this message that's cause for celebration. That's euangelion. Um, so this, this text isn't giving them like religious news, gospel, good news. When it was done in the beginning, it's not, it's not religious. It comes from war. It comes from a runner from battle. It's not about, it's certainly not about how to get into heaven when you die, which is what we've reduced the gospel to. Uh, evangelicals have in America. Pretty much the only ones who've done this. It's promising, um, in a sense, good news from the battlefront of the lives of the poor, right? That's what it's saying. The, the front lines of their struggle to find a place in the, in the world where they can um, have meaning and purpose and be human. So this has deep political overtones. Just the mention of the poor in the same line as the gospel. The blind, it says, will find sight. In the Gospel of Luke, I mean, we could go into this in detail, but the blind uh, are never, it's never just physical blindness. It's a metaphor for understanding. They, they, um, they lived in such a confusing world. And so they're not just physically blind. All of them were blind to some extent. Blind to the powers that were working to keep them in the dark. And, and they need to receive their sight so they can see what's actually happening in the world around them and know how to respond, right? Then it says the captives, prisoners, is another way to translate it, will be released. This is an interesting one. In the ancient world, the only prisoners or captives were either those awaiting trial, um, like awaiting a hearing or tribunal or some kind of judgment, or political prisoners, prisoners of war, or very often, um, a rival, like a political rival that they couldn't kill, but they couldn't just let run around, you know, and organize against them. So that, those were the people that were in prison. But there were no prison terms for criminals back then. If you were guilty of a crime, you got punished right away. They chop your hand off or they, like, whatever, flogged, beaten, fined. It was immediate. There was no, like, you're going to spend 30 days in, in the jail. They didn't, it just wasn't something that was part of their life. So the captives here, there's a sense in which they are all held captive by these political powers, they can't let them run around, do whatever they want to do, organizing more equitably, right? They were all people whose fate was in the hands of corrupt kings and corrupt leadership of their church. And so this, this text promises release there. The, the oppressed will also be released, we're told. Um, oppression, you know, of course, isn't isn't usually um, personal. It's social. Oppression is. It's systemic. And the people who are being bruised and broken and ground to dust just by the way they had organized their um, common life. Those are the people who get rescued by the anointed one because he brings the year of the Lord's favor, a change to the structure, to the situation in the year of Jubilee. Okay, step back for a moment here. In the Gospel of Luke, this is Jesus' very first teaching moment the kind of coming out party for his public ministry. And what he starts with is this passage from Isaiah that's not about like religious conviction or personal sin and salvation. It's about oppression and pr political prisoners of an unjust 
system. It's about the ability to, to see who's running things the way they are and why. It's good news and relief to those who are living in poverty. You can't, you can't distill this down to like a promise of personal salvation. How to get into heaven when you die. This is way bigger than all of that. And you know, I mean, you can imagine the angst the, the ache in the hearts of the people who gathered in the synagogue that day. It wasn't a fear of hell. They were Jews, man. They were, they're like, we're good. It wasn't fear of hell. It, it wasn't guilt about personal sin or longing for like a warm, fuzzy, you know, from, from God. They weren't longing to be more pious or more religious and holy. They were like professionally religious. And yet there was this longing for help. A visible, socio-political, economic restructuring of their world. They were longing for relief from this corrupt system that was like a, playing a Monopoly game. Just frustrating. And you couldn't win. This constant weight pressing down on them. They were captive. They were prisoners. But not to, like, personal sin. Their bondage was to a corrupt system. An unjust system that held them, most of them, in, in poverty used and abused them and their families and made it hard to be human as human was meant to be and so hard to live with a sense of flourishing and hope and joy. They all knew that they didn't have the power to change that system. And greater religious devotion or personal piety wasn't enough. That, was, by the way, was what the Pharisees thought. If you have greater religious devotion, keep the law as good as a priest, not just like a normal person, like a priest, and Messiah will show up. And they... They were tired of that script. They needed divine help, the Lord to intervene on their behalf, which is why Jesus is reading from the prophets about this holistic promise that had been promised for centuries that God would anoint someone to come change their situation and release them from a system that was stealing away their peace, stealing away their future, and a hope for their children. And so he reads this passage from Isaiah sits down after he's done reading in the seat of Moses. And, and he just, the way they write it, there's like, he takes a beat. Um, it's funny, Isaiah is, this is a technical thing, it's really long, it's like 66 chapters long. Most likely it was in two scrolls. This is chapter 61, which is the end of the other scroll, which means that he had to, roll it all the way to the other end. To sh I mean, this is a total Mr. Bean moment in the synagogue here. It's like the awkward thing. Sits down in the seat of Moses and it says all the eyes of the synagogue are on him. He just sits there looking at him. They're close, right? And the hush comes over the room. They're just waiting. And they all probably, if you can put yourself there in your imagination, they all probably thought they knew what he was going to say. You know, you sit in the seat of Moses, you don't innovate. You color within the lines. You reinforce the conventional wisdom. That's what they thought he'd do. So it was a total record scratch when Jesus says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You don't say that in Moses' seat. You don't. The, the place would have gone nuts. He was claiming to be Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus was claiming, in effect, that his life's mission was to bring the comprehensive restructuring of all social relations that they were longing for and 
which Yahweh had promised them over and over and over in the prophets while they were in exile. He was proclaiming, the way he ends, the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, this reset, establishing kind of a new structure, a new regime called the kingdom of God, which was his constant refrain. And this would be good news to the poor and the blind and the captives and the oppressed. And it says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words. That's an interesting use. At the grace in the sound of his voice. The gracious words that came from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Which is like the head scratcher moment in this. Is this Joseph's son? Like, what is happening here? And I just think this is, we have to kind of end there because we're going to continue the story next week. This is such a fascinating moment in um, Epiphany, the season of Epiphany, this big reveal that Jesus is rolling out in his hometown saying, like in his opening press conference, um, I'm a Messiah. And he doesn't even mention how to get into heaven when you die. You know, his opening statement to the people of God wasn't nationalistic about an army he was raising in a revolution. It wasn't how Israel could become great again, which is what many of them wanted. It wasn't about how he was right and everybody else was wrong about this matter or that of Torah. It wasn't an evangelistic crusade like Billy Graham. It wasn't even about piety and personal holiness. Jesus' opening statement in the Gospel of Luke was about reordering their world so that the ragamuffins, the least, the lost, and the lowly can flourish again. That's where he starts. That's what he's promising. His understanding of what the Lord had anointed him to do was to bring good news to the poor, release the captives, give sight to the blind, release the oppressed, bring, bring the year of jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. And really from that moment on, anywhere he went, jubilee showed up. The blind could see, the hungry were fed. Debts were canceled, slaves got freed, sinners found forgiveness, the lonely found friendship. Wherever he went, Jubilee came with him. And if he was in Capernaum, Jubilee came to Capernaum that day. If he was in Nazareth, it came there. If he went to Jericho, Zacchaeus shows up, gives his fortune to the strugglers of Jericho. It was Jubilee. It's a, it's a reordering of the economic structure of Jericho. That's what happened when he was like, I'm going to come eat with you. This is, there's power behind this. A meal changes fellowship, changes the economic structures of, of this town. When he, when he went to Jerusalem, a woman caught in adultery, he stands in front of her and says, if you want to kill her, you know, whoever is, doesn't have sin problems, the, the subtext is, whoever is like sexually not screwed up, you go ahead and start in on her, Right? He's reordering their relationships of gender and power here, lifting up the weak. Everywhere he went, this is what he did. It wasn't just some religious thing. He's restructuring their systems, economic, religious, political, social, systems of power, systems of violence. He turned them all upside down so that the outsiders, the lepers, the unclean, the Gentiles, Women, children, foreigners, tax collectors, sinners of all kinds, the ones who suffered in their world, suddenly found themselves at, 
at the center of this new community of Jubilee. And the, and the church that kind of became established in his name became this alternative system within the corrupt system of the world. The kingdoms of the world kept grinding people into dust, but those who were part of the kingdom of God, under the Lord, living under the lordship of Christ, they would just say, yeah, that's how the world is, but not so with us. We have a different system. And so what happened was followers took Jubilee with them everywhere they went. And the people of God would, those who had much would throw open the barn doors and let people in. Just give others access to all they had. People who could press for their rights chose forgiveness instead. Instead of revenge, they reconciled. Instead of greed, they chose generosity. Instead of exclusivity, um, they chose hospitality and friendship with people who were usually on the outside. It's moved by by gratitude and love for Christ and swearing, you know, this belief in him as Messiah and allegiance to the way he was recommending to them, they took him at his word. And so his word, what he said was, today, not future, later on, not when you die, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. God's long-awaited, life-affirming, soul-saving, alternative arrangement for human society, one that leaves no one out in the cold. It had arrived in that synagogue in Nazareth, and it just began to explode. And everywhere he went, there was jubilee, and everywhere his followers went, there was jubilee. And you and I, you guys, we are carriers of this promise of jubilee. The church is meant to be, I'm not saying it is, I'm just saying the church is meant to be the one place in the world where Jubilee is still the dominant reality. And this is part of why we call ourselves ragamuffins, right? I don't want you to have to pay for your brokenness. I, I don't want me to have to pay. I pay enough for my brokenness already just from natural consequences. I need you to love me and forgive me, right? It's completely different than the way the world organizes. We're supposed to play, be the place where that happens. And so we come together, we study the scriptures, we practice the movements of the kingdom of God, we mark time by the church calendar, we tell and retell the story of God, let it shape our imagination, we sing our songs and pray our prayers, we bless our children, we work our Christian practices of Sabbath, tithing, you know, um, weekly worship, daily prayer of time in solitude, and then time in community with other Christians, and especially, especially being um, paired with the outcasts, always. And what we find is, if we'll restructure things toward generosity and forgiveness, all those Christian virtues, jubilee just happens today. And the promise is that just by our willingness to live in that year of jubilee mindset, restructuring our lives and relationships, and especially the systems that we're part of, challenging them, changing them if we can, so that they reflect Christ's life and teaching. Just by doing this, 
we destabilize the regimes under which we live, the unjust regimes, and affirm the just ones. And sometimes the ones that are a mixed bag, we just have a way of call them into question and then make them better. But for sure, we, we challenge. Our way of being becomes a challenge to the monopoly regimes that make victims of the weak in service of the wealthy and the powerful and the selfish and the brutal. And so our, our way of being church, organizing our common life together, is, is supposed to proclaim there's, there's a better way to organize the world here. We're playing a different game than Monopoly. And if you come to be a part of it, you'll experience the good news and the year of the Lord's favor. And I really do think this is, this is the heart of what we're trying to do at Redemption Church. We're trying to let this kind of jubilee way of thinking be our reality and stand behind the systems that we build for our way of life. And all you have to do to be part of this, now it gets to like the old gospel-sounding stuff, but now it's the same words that has new meaning. All you have to do is take up your cross and follow Jesus. Let Christ become your Messiah and Lord, our Deliverer. All we have to do is receive his presence, in a sense. And then live our life in his name, because everywhere he goes, jubilee follows. Amen? Let's pray. And God, we thank you for this story. This season of Advent, or season of Epiphany, I mean, this, this time where Jesus is showing up and revealing um, so much about who you are, God, and who we are. And we're grateful. We confess, God, that we really do need an anointed one. We need to be led by your spirit to try to fight back against the cruelty of our world and um, somehow embody an alternative. It's really, really hard to do this. And so we confess how much we need your help. And help us to see, although it is difficult, it's just so much better to not be consumed by greed and the need to fight and scrap and compete to the top of everything, but rather just to live with open hands and open hearts share, to love, to forgive. This is a hopeful way to live. This is a better way to live. We ask you to continue to bless Redemption Church. Watch over us as we try to live um, in the way of our Messiah. Amen invite you to stand um, wherever you are um, at home or here in, in the room. We're going to receive communion because um, on the other end of his ministry, on the night before his death, Jesus gathered with his friends and he took a loaf of bread and, and blessed it and broke it and passed it to them. They all shared in it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and they shared in it. He blessed it, they shared in it. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in, in remembrance of me. He said, is, whenever you gather, eat this bread, drink this cup, take, in a sense, my body, my blood, blood meant life. Take it into your life. Get made out of the stuff I'm made of, this jubilee stuff, and then sent out into the world. And um, so Christians have been doing this ever since that day, and, and this is why we observe communion, even when you're, like, off at home somewhere. Um, so whatever you've got around that's edible can become our communion for today. If you would just um, hold it in common, and let's pray a blessing on it. Lord, we ask your blessing upon the bread and the cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come live inside us. Make us new from inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Will you come to the table?